This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In New York Times bestselling author Robert Dagoni's latest thriller, A Cold Trail, Seattle homicide detective Tracy Crosswhite returns home to Cedar Grove, where a brutal murder and her haunted past come to a crossroads. Robert, several of your books have your protagonist, Tracy Crosswhite, set in Seattle, where she's a police detective. But now she and Dan have inherited his family home back in Cedar Grove, and they want to make it a getaway for them and perhaps even raise their new infant daughter there. But Tracy is uncomfortable with that. It was, in fact, the town in which her sister disappeared several decades ago. You've really given her quite a dilemma. Because I knew that that would create um, a whole conundrum of emotional uh, difficulties for her. Dan has his parents' house, but he has a totally different perspective of Cedar Grove than Tracy has. Dan grew up there, and then he left. He went away to school. He was not there when Tracy's sister went missing and was you know, subsequently found. So Tracy has this really horrific recollection of Cedar Grove. She lost her sister. She lost her home. She lost her parents. I mean, everything kind of fell apart. Um, Dan doesn't. But at the same time, Tracy is she's trying to be a good wife. She knows what the house means to Dan. So she's willing to sort of, you know, suck it up and go back home. And she also wants her daughter to have an understanding of where her mother and father grew up and who they are as people. And so she she has these conflicting uh, emotions going back and forth when she goes back home because it's a small town, and I, I'll always remember one of the homicide detectives I worked with told me that a crime in a small town is much different than a crime in a big city. A crime in a small town will be remembered for forever, and it will impact everyone that's there because they will know the person that was uh, the victim. And so when Tracy goes back home, it's not only she's going home to a difficult situation. She is a reminder for all the people in town of what happened all those years ago to her sister. When Tracy and Dan get to Cedar Grove, they discover that the town has embarked on a revitalization project. It will bring new people and business and money into the town, all great things in assuaging the memories that everyone has held on to. But things get a bit complicated when Tracy's involvement is requested in solving Cedar Grove's most recent murder. The police chief, uh, who I've always really loved as a character in that in that first book, uh, you know, he comes to her and says, "Listen, we've had something that's really way over my head. Uh, we had the murder of the wife of the chief of police, the guy that took over for him, and I have to sort of step aside, uh, but I need someone to look into this." And so again, you know, she's. She's conflicted because she's got this this baby at home. They're trying out a new nanny. Uh, she wants to be a mom. She wants to be there for her daughter. But, you know, here comes a, a man that she's known her entire life asking her for help for a, another individual she's known for many, many years who is who is suffering. His wife has been brutally murdered, and they cannot determine who the killer was. So, again, it's that strong sense of justice that, that drives her to say yes, that she will look into this and see what she can find. So it was really the circumstances, and that happens to me 
quite a bit. I wrote a book called In the Clearing, and it's it's the uh, the death of a uh, of a Native American girl, uh, and then you know forty years later, uh, this girl was killed in a hit and run accident. They never found out who did it. Forty years later, what has that done to the town? What has that done to the people? But it really started with my uh, my reading about a hit and run accident uh, that killed a young woman, and they the, the the perpetrators took off, and they had not caught them. And I thought to myself, what does that do to the family? What does that do to the town? What does that do to the people that live in town? Because everybody's looking at everybody else. So um, really, it was more the circumstance for me. And then I don't outline. I, I just sort of follow the plot and, and develop the plot as I go. And so all the other things came about sort of in, in, in conjunction with that one, uh, that one idea. Um, you know, can you go back home again? Right, right. And so sad. Such a circumstance. There's a very important reveal um, that's made because of the way you use a particular state law in order to get witnesses to be called in the case where normally none would be needed, um, let alone allowed. Um, how did, you know, I'm, I, you're, you're an attorney, so I know that you probably know Washington law <laughs> backwards and forwards, but when did this come to you to use as a device, which I, I thought was ideal for the circumstances and how it played out in your plot? I mean, one of the things you want to, you always want to do, right, is you want your, you want your protagonist to be just a little bit better than everybody else at what they do. And Dan is a very good lawyer. And so, you know, he has this, he has what appears to be um, a, a, basically a, a landlord tenant case. And, um, and, and that's what he's going into court for, you know, sort of this landlord tenant dispute, but he's a little bit better than everybody else, uh, except for maybe the judge who, who knows what he's doing and is giving him some rope, but is, is trying to be cautious about what Dan's doing when he gets in the court, because Dan is bringing in these people in the court that seem very, very tangential to this, this landlord-tenant dispute, but, but he's, he's not, and the, and the judge knows this. Uh, the judge knows that there's something else afoot here, uh, but he's given Dan rope because it's so freaking interesting uh, and it it, so, it goes so far beyond the, the traditional, you know, landlord-tenant boring dispute. He wants to find out as much as, as the reader does. Where exactly is Dan going with this, and what exactly is is it gonna is it gonna prove? I always try to have the reader, um, I always have the reader try to to be in a position where they're trying to figure out what is he doing and, and why is he doing it. But then to also admire the fact that the person, Dan or Tracy, are very, very good at what they do. So that there's always a feeling of no matter what transpires, no matter what happens, they're in good hands because Dan and Tracy will figure a way around it. Right, right. Well, I thought it was brilliant, I have to tell you, um, because it was sort of, to me, it was like a Perry Mason moment. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, you have to be careful of because, Nobody ever confesses on the stand, but you can get them to a point where they can, uh, you get enough information out where, where even when justice is not, not served, everybody else in the, in the room 
um, knows, you know, knows the truth. In, good instance, I, I, was, I went and saw the movie Just Mercy last night uh, about, you know, a black man in uh, Mobile, Alabama, who's um, convicted on basically no evidence at all uh, of murdering a, an 18-year-old woman. And uh, the black attorney from Harvard that comes down to get him a new trial, when he goes into court and puts the people on the stand, it's very, very clear to everyone in the room that there's been an injustice done here. But the judge still rules that the guy can't have a new trial. And so there's that sense, there's that sense of, of agony and justice, uh, injustice for the reader and for the viewer of, of the movie. But you're sitting there and you're thinking, this attorney's going to figure something out. He's got to figure something out. He can't let this go because this guy is clearly innocent. And that's, you know, that's what I think a lot of good writers try to do is to, is to make the reader feel like they're in good hands. And, and even though they're, they're on the edge of their seat and they're tense and they're angry and they're frustrated because of what's, what, you know, what's going on. They, there's this sense that the protagonist, it'll be okay. The protagonist will figure it out. Right. Exactly. And um, in your case, it, it, it worked beautifully. Thank you. Um, in the novel, uh, you know, because Tracy is investigating several unexplained murders, um, you have a device in which you actually go into the mind of the victims at the moment of their deaths. Talk about this as a use of, you know, using the victim's POV as a cluing in device. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's much more personal. And so what I, and I actually am, I'm writing Tracy eight as, as you and I speak. And I, I thought just, it just dawned on me yesterday that it is a technique that I do use and because I'm using it in, in Tracy number eight. And I did use it in Tracy number seven, where uh, I, maybe I'll have a prologue and the prologue will take the reader up to a very specific point in time, a heightened point of tension, but won't give them the answer. Uh, you know, the, the, the woman will see headlights approaching her and then the, the scene will end, uh, whatever that is. And, and, and so the reader knows a little bit more than what Tracy does when the book starts, but they don't know what happened. Then as the story progresses and Tracy begins her investigation, the reader starts to understand what that opening prologue, what that opening chapter was about, but still doesn't have all of the details because neither does Tracy. And I want the reader to get the details at the same time Tracy does. And so when Tracy reaches that point where she figures out what happened, I will often jump back into the, into the mind of the victim because it's really Tracy reliving what happened to the victim. But I like to do it from the perspective of the victim because it's obviously much more personal. Uh, it's much more horrific. You know, it's, 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 um, it's much more tension filled and stress filled. You know, it, 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 it's just like if someone sat down to tell you a story, um, that would be that there would certainly might be a, a lot of tension in that story. But if you live that story, right, it's a lot different than having someone tell it to you. And so what I want the reader to experience it firsthand. I want them to step into the shoes, empathize with the victim and understand firsthand what happened. 
to that individual. Right, right. And that's a beautiful way of doing it, too. Um, it does ratchet up the suspense. Which is what it's all about, right? No matter what books we're writing, no matter what genre we're writing, you know, um, genre books are about suspense. They're about getting the reader to turn the page. And, and the, the best way to do that is, is to make them want to find out what's going to happen. They're all different forms of tension, and they take all different uh, – you can do it in a, in a all different number of ways. There can be you know, relationship tension. There can be pers- personal tension, professional tension, whatever it is. But those are the things that a reader turns the page to find out what's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I have one more question for you. It's regarding a really good tomato sauce that you have to use a full cup of white wine and a lot of garlic in your sauce. Yeah. <laughs> and I, where did you get that? Now, tell me that's a Dagoni family secret because I, I have a feeling it is. That is, but... a, that is a, yeah, that is a, that is a Dagoni family secret. You know, it's funny. My mother is Irish. Uh-huh. Uh, she's 100% Irish. And my son's first nanny was Therese. And she was from she was from Dublin, and she has become sort of a lifelong friend. In fact, my son is remains close to her because she was really a, a, a lovely young woman. And my wife was very much when when Joe uh, was old enough that my wife was going to go back to work. My wife was extremely torn between being a lawyer and being a mom, stay at home mom. And so a lot of the relationship between Tracy and Therese is very much comes from my experience observing my wife and, uh, and Therese, you know, with my son, Joe. And I will never forget, there were two things. One was Therese came into the house when we were interviewing nannies, and she walked right over and she picked up Joe and she was, Joe was just smiling and happy and, and she said, you know, something to the effect of, hello, hello there, young one. And then she said, I'm going to be the daytime mommy, and she's going to be the nighttime mommy. And my wife had to leave the room because she burst into tears. Right? She's just like, oh, my God, she's replacing me. <laughs> so when we, left, when we left for work that day, we drove together. When we got home that night, not only was Joe just as happy as he could possibly be, the house was spotless. The laundry was, was washed and folded, and on the stove was a spaghetti sauce that she had made for us for, for dinner. And it was, it was amazing. It was, it was fantastic. And so um, I laughed because Therese was Irish. She wasn't Italian. My mom was a fabulous cook because my nanu was a chef. And he loved my mom and because my mom would come over to the house and he would teach her how to do all the things, all the Italian things, how to make the gnocchi, how to make the sauce, how do you brown the meat and make the, you know, all the things. That, so my mom, even though she was Irish, was this fantastic Italian cook. <laughs> um, and so I pulled, I pulled a little from both um, to, to come up with the, the, the tomato sauce. Well, it, it was um, it was a great insight, both into the writer and the character, and I'm sure that's why your books are so loved by your readers. 
Well, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm very blessed. I have a lot of help. One of the reasons I sent Tracy back home to Cedar Grove was because uh, one of the officers who uh, was really a confidant to me and, and had helped me very much with all my books uh, passed away. He died unexpectedly of pancreatitis, and um, his wife uh, is the model that I use for Tracy Crossway. She's one of Seattle's first hom- female homicide detectives. And so it was a really, really difficult thing because I did not, I, I would go through my, my notes. I, you know, I keep binders and all the interviews I've done. And I saw all these interviews with this friend of mine, Scott Tompkins. And I did not, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go into police procedural stuff. Um, because I, I didn't want to I didn't want to have to deal with the fact that Scott was gone, and I didn't want to have to burden Jen, uh, his wife, um, and, and go to her because she was grieving uh, horribly uh, for his loss, and so that was another motivation for sending Tracy back home, because I wouldn't have to deal with a lot of the you know the specifics of police work um, that that police officers have to go through all the you know, the, the paperwork and all the other things. She's really almost like a private investigator in this case because she's she's taking it on outside of, of her duties as a Seattle homicide detective. Um, so I was, that was really another reason for the motivation for her to, to go home at this time. It's a really sad situation. Scott was a, a young man who was only 48 years old and uh, just a prince of a guy. And um, I'll never forget when I met him. He was very quiet. He just sat and he listened to me and asked, you know, I was talking to him about my sister's grave. And he just looked at me and he said, you really should meet. It was his girlfriend at the time. You really should meet my girlfriend. And I said, well, who is she? And he told me, and he said, she's really Seattle's first homicide detective. Wow. And so I owe a lot. I owe a lot to both of them. And uh, I was in, um, I was coming home from Africa with my wife and we were in the Johannesburg airport when I got a phone call that Scott had passed away. And, um, it was very, it was, it was really, um, it was really difficult. Uh, when, when you see someone that young who you know so well, suddenly he's just gone. Right. And that's a, that's a brutal disease so, too. It is. And I, you know, I, um, uh, I'm fortunate that, you know, I, um, I've since uh, seen Jen and, and talked to her and, you know, one of the things she said to me, which was really very heartwarming. And she said, I said, you know, Jen, I don't, I don't want to burden you. And it, if it's too difficult because you and Scott used to do this and help me together, you know, I certainly don't want to make you do that. She looked at me and she said, Oh my God, Bob, no, I love doing this with you. I, I love reading your books. It's a, it's a, for it's, it was always so wonderful to, to play, you know, Tracy Crosswhite and, and this is what I would do and this is how I would do it. And now she said, it's, it's really, it's a great distraction and it's a great memory of, what's you know scott and i used to do to 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 put together so um you know they named they they uh, started a uh, a golf tournament in scott's name and it goes to support uh victim support services in which he was on the board of directors and so my wife and i have been able to um to you know to contribute and to give back um, through victim support services which was really just just a perfect perfect charity for us because it not only was an on in honor of scott but it was an ability for me to give back uh, to victims who, in a in a in a weird sense, I write about, 
and I don't ever want to glorify. Uh, I don't ever want to glorify homicides. I don't want to glorify crime. This is not. This is not something that I'm that I, I ever want people to to read and and have a, a you know a lurid fascination with. I, I want them to realize the brutality of the acts and what it does um, to the families that are left behind. And so for for me and for my wife, it was just it was a great opportunity for us to be able to be in a position to give back in a way that was meaningful and in a way that um, directly related to the success of my books. So. Um, you know, horrible, horrible tragedy and circumstance, but hopefully some good can come from it. Robert Dagoni's latest Tracy Crosswhite thriller, A Cold Trail, is available now at your local bookstore. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. <laughs>